Romans chapter 14. We started 14 last week. And really, what Paul is addressing in, in chapter 14, we need to understand something. That Paul didn't just sit down on days and say, you know what, I haven't taught these people these particular things, so maybe today would be a good time for me to write about that. Very often what you find is that Paul is addressing real and actual difficulties and problems that are taking place in the particular church he happens to be writing to. So what I'm telling you is this, is the church in Rome was struggling with how are we supposed to respond to the governing authorities over us as far as the civil authorities go. They were also struggling about what it is appropriate for Christians to do and what is not appropriate for Christians to do. So one of the reasons that he wrote chapter 14 to help us make the distinction that we need to be able to make. We are unique people. No two people in this room are like each other in every way. That means that we also are unique Christians. Because we're a unique Christian, certain things are going to seem to be more important to us then other things, and some things that we consider to be more trivial, are going to be of very great importance to other people. We need to be sensitive to that. And let me just say, that's not a bad thing. It encourages us to do things like talk and discuss with one another these things. With the hope and understanding that through that, maybe we can all come to a better understanding. There needs to be a lot of communication between us. One of the things going on in Rome, just like it was going on in, in Corinth, were issues like, is it okay for Christians to eat anything and everything? Or do we need to avoid certain things? There were a lot of people who were saying, well, we need to avoid things like meat sacrificed to idols. And it was an issue not only going on in, in Corinth, but it was also going on in Rome. That was very common. Most people in those days were religious. They weren't following the, the true religion, but they were religious. The Roman culture was religious. The Greek culture had been religious. They had such influence on Everything, but we understand their religion was false and it was wrong when it came to just about everything. I'll tell you, one of the most laughable things is this, and, and, and Isaiah in a couple of places makes, makes light of this, and that is how ridiculous, how absolutely ridiculous it is for man to fashion some kind of an image out of gold or other metal or wood or, or stone or, or anything else and then bow down to it and worship it. Isn't that the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard in your whole lifetime? was very common among people in those days. It's common among people today, believe it or not. It's ridiculous. It's laughable. 
but it just goes to show you how far man has fallen away from the real, true, and living God. Very often people understand that there is a God, but they're confused, very confused about who that God is and what that God is. But one of the issues obviously here was this. Is it okay to eat the meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Because what would happen in those days is, let's say, a goat or a cow or, or sheep was sacrificed before some idol. They would say, well, what are we going to do with all this meat that's left over? And very often that meat would wind up in the local meat market because people are willing to pay money for meat. And so was it the place of Christians going to that meat market to ask the butcher, oh, by the way, where did this come from? And she said, well, you know, they sacrificed it at the, the temple to Caesar down, down the road. Then there were Christians who were saying, by no means should you ever let such meat touch your lips. It's sacrilegious for you to do that. There were other people in the churches in Corinth and in, in Rome also who were saying, this is a gift from God. You can eat it without any concern about that. So division had arisen in the church. It wasn't just over this. If you look at the church in Corinth, they were divided over just about everything you can possibly imagine. That's what the whole epistle is about. Paul addresses it just a little bit here in Rome, but in, 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 in Corinth, the whole epistle is about the church being divided. Over all kinds of things. His whole purpose in writing is to bring Christians together so they have a common mind and understanding and purpose in mind. That they're working with one another, not against one another. And just like is true in every church, remember God gives each of us a measure of faith, which means this, we don't all have the same a level of faith. When I was a young believer, I really believed this, and I still believe it to some degree, and that is that very often people that become missionaries are people who have exceptional faith. Let me tell you, there was a missionary that had probably the most profound impact upon me as a seeker than any Christian I ever met in my community. He preached at Seven Rivers one Sunday after I first started coming, and what impressed me about him was I finally saw that person that I had been looking for my whole lifetime, and that is this person actually really, truly, honestly, obviously believes what he professes because of his willingness to do what most people wouldn't even think about doing. Because he was a relatively young man, had a wife, had kids. One of their kids contracted muscular dystrophy in Uganda. His name was Benjamin. One of the sweetest kids you ever met in your life. He died when he was 8 or 10 years old. 
real sacrifice. But let me tell you, it challenged me, the unbeliever, in a way that nothing else I had seen did. I'm here today in part because of that person. What Paul is trying to achieve here is harmony within the church. It's a common theme. You see him writing about it in 1 Corinthians and Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 8 in particular. Galatians chapter 5, he addresses it. So you need to understand this is a common theme. It's not that this was a rare thing going on in Rome. It was what was happening all over the, the church early on. There was division, and very often it was division over unimportant, trivial matters. And obviously, from the things that he said, there were some people in the church that we can be, be considered to be people of weaker faith, and at the same time, there were others who were people considered to be of greater faith. And that was causing friction between the two. I just want to share a couple of examples with you this morning. The PCA. The PCA is a denomination that I love. Is it perfect? Is it right in absolutely everything it does and says? I don't believe that for one minute, and I hope you don't either. You're not going to find a perfect body of believers in this world because this world's not perfect and the church is not. No, it's not filled with perfect people. To have a perfect church, you've got to have perfect people, and I don't know of a church that has perfect people. But we are a church. The Presbyterian Church in America exists today because we understand that there is a point where division has to take place. In other words, there are certain things that are so important you cannot give one inch of ground on them. See, this is the problem is people don't have the discernment of understanding what is that important and what isn't. Very often people make the trivial little nothing things that maybe are pointed to some degree but not central. They make those things. They exaggerate those things. They put over-importance on those things. And in the result, they cause fracturing and breaking in the church. But we're in this denomination called the Presbyterian Church in America. This is not that old. Why is it here? Because we had brothers and sisters that for years tried to fight the battle about the infringement of liberal Christianity into the Southern Presbyterian Church. To the point that they were ordaining men and maybe even women at that point to the office of pastor who denied 
the virgin birth of Jesus, who denied the substitutionary atonement for, of Christ, etc., denied the miracles of Jesus, etc., etc., etc. In other words, they were espousing what is fundamentally as the very heart of their religion, unchristian. So I just want to remind us this morning that there is a time when you don't have a choice but to divide. That it only comes when you get to the point that you're ready to say, you may call yourself a Christian or you may say that you're a Christian church, but just by simple logic of understanding, you obviously aren't. The problem we have today is this, is we have a populace out there that doesn't understand any of this. As anything says church on it, they think everybody basically belongs this, or, or, or understands everything the same way. There's actually one thing, and I'm not even going to tell you what it is, that I disagree with the PCA on. I think we're wrong about it. But I'm not even going to tell you what that is, because 99% of what we hold dear, I hold dear. There are going to be disagreements between us when it comes to the minor things, the less central things. But there cannot be any disagreement when it comes to the major things. The problem in Corinth and in Rome and other places was they were lifting the trivial matters to places of importance. To the point they were ready to, de to, to, to determine based upon your position in regard to eating meat sacrificed to idols or other things, determine whether you really are a Christian or not. Just remember that division sometimes is absolutely necessary, and the PCA is a good example of a necessary division. But very often churches and members of churches are separated from one another, divided over things that really are not central. They're minor aspects of the faith where we have some ground to give people ground on. Maturity is knowing the difference. There's only one way to know the difference, and that is to study your Bible. To know your Bible. Fearfully, there are people in this room that are depending upon me to tell them everything they're supposed to know and believe. I mean, how many times have you heard, well, my pastor told me this, my pastor teaches this, Therefore, it's got to be true. Took it right out of the Bible. Don't be that person. Please don't ever tell people that you believe what you believe because Pastor Keith taught me that. It's not a place I want to be in. 
verse 13 and 14. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. For I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the worker of God for the sake of food. Who's he writing to when he says that? He's writing to the people who believe they were the strong in faith, who were telling other people, you can't eat that meat. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. The faith which you have, uh, <clears throat> have as your own conviction before God, happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. See, one of the problems in Rome was this is there were people who believed that they were a step above everybody else. They considered themselves to be strong in the faith. And they considered other people to be weak in the faith. There were also people in the congregation who looked upon particular people as being strong in the faith and others as being weak in the faith. This had become a point of division between the members. It was like two distinct groups of people meeting together. Those with a big faith, those with a little faith. Those with strong faith, those with weak faith. Very often, the strong people, who people who believed they were strong in the faith, actually were not. They were the ones that were willing to pass judgment on everybody else for little reason or ground for doing so. There are people in churches all over the place with that mindset. And what Paul is talking about here is Christian freedom. But ultimately the message we're getting here is this. Is, is, is use your freedom, but if it causes your brother and sister to stumble because you use your freedom, you need to be sensitive to that. In other words, freedom is one thing, but don't take your freedom and rub it in the nose of people who disagree with you. Don't bring attention to yourself. Years ago, when the church was very young, we would have rejoiced to have this many people
I was new in the pastorate, having, you know, and I was relatively new as a Christian. You know, some people, you know, I got on a fast pace from the very beginning. I'd only been a Christian for just a year before I became a deacon in the church, and a, I was a ruling elder within a couple of years, and in seminary within, you know, a year or two of that, and this, that, and the other, and became a pastor, you know, fully ordained and all that within five or six years of my coming to faith. And it was a struggle. But we all have a path. And people, you know, people would come to me. And, you know, I was using an example over and over again as somebody, you know, and still, you know, guys will call me every now and then, pastor guys, and I know, I don't know the details about your conversion because I want to use you as a sermon illustration. how God took someone who was a complete, absolutely believer and, you know, look what's going on today. I would rather not be used as an example. But there's a sense in which everyone in this room ought to be able to be used as an example. Because life as a Christian is very different than life as an unchristian. We need to be very careful when we begin to say, you know, so-and-so, they're really strong in their faith, but so-and-so just not. Have you ever made a judgment like that? Come on, be honest. I know you have. I have. My whole point here is people use me as an example of what having real strong faith is like, and I'm going, don't look at me. You need to be careful about making distinctions between those who are weak and those who are strong, especially if you see yourself as being one of the strong ones. Because truth be told, if that's true, then very likely you are actually one of the weaker ones. There's a sense in which Paul is saying here, get a grip. Now, years ago, when the church was little, we had a church service, and then after it, we had a church picnic, which seems like a good idea for all the people in the core group, except for one person. And that one person didn't come. And made it clear that the reason they didn't come was because we were desecrating the Sabbath day by having a church picnic after church. Now, I told you last week, and this is true, you can check it out if you want to, but the vast majority of PCE pastors adhere very closely to the Westminster Confession except for one thing. That it's understanding of a strict observance of the Sabbath day, which means no recreation, no relaxing at all. 
needs to be about prayer and worship and singing and Bible reading and all that for 24 hours. At least 12 hours. Like I said, most of the pastors in the PCA don't believe that. They believe that it is a day of worship, but it's also a day that's different from other days in, in certain ways. Now, let me tell you, I think some people today are pushing the limits when it comes to the freedoms that we're expressing on the Sabbath day. But I had to have a conversation with that person about this. And from the very beginning, it became apparent to me that this person believed that they were the strong one in faith and all the other people were the weak ones. That ultimately, they were the only one that cared about the precious things of God and all the other people just didn't care at all. And that's not the first time they got upset. They got upset a number of times after that and eventually left the church which really didn't surprise most of us. But how did I address that when I had that conversation? What do you think I said to them? Uh, you're wrong. You're dead wrong. We're right. You think you're strong. We're the strong ones. You're the weak one. That's what I said to them, right? Now, what I told them was this. If you're offended by it, we will never have a church picnic after church again. And we never have. Unless you want to make brunch out to be a picnic. Do you understand that this is what Paul is encouraging? That we be sensitive to people that are not where we are? That we don't rub their nose in it? That we need to be respectful of their convictions, even if their convictions are not identical to ours? Pursue things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. Do you understand what he's saying there? He's saying there that just because it's okay for you to freely eat meat and to, to freely drink wine. Don't rub your neighbor's nose in it who disagrees with you. Don't flaunt your freedoms before them. Very often, that's our temptation to do that. Well, let me tell you, 
your pastor is nowhere near an alcoholic. Ask anybody that knows me. But I do have an occasional beer or wine. Would there be any people in, in the church in general today that would take very great offense to that and basically be willing to declare that you're not a Christian, you're certainly not fit to be a pastor? You think that there would be people that fit in that category? Because they have the mindset and they've been taught perhaps by people that they recognize as being people of authority who have said this, that drinking of alcohol in any way, shape, or form, any time is a sin. Have you ever heard that? The next time you hear it, give someone a Bible and tell them, show me where the Bible declares that drinking alcohol at all under any circumstances is a sin. It's not there. What the Bible declares is drunkenness. And my daughter sitting back there will tell you this, that even though she sees me drink a, wine, a beer every now and then, she has never in her whole lifetime seen me drunk. Or if she has, she'll keep it to herself. You understand that I have that freedom to do that? But at the same time, I am very cautious about people I do that in front of. Why? Because I know two things. I know that if some people see me doing that, they will think I'm sinning. In other words, it will cause them to stumble. You follow me? And what Paul is saying in those circumstances, if you expressing your freedom is going to cause one of your brothers or sisters to stumble because their understanding may be wrong about something, then that right there is a basis for you to not do it. That's okay, it happens to the best of us. We were, we were having communion one Sunday, and this was early on when cell phones, somebody's phone went off, and it was a William Tell Overture in the middle of communion. <laughs> There's another reason why I don't do it in, in certain company, and that is this is I know that there are people who are, in fact, prone to alcoholism. Who, if they see me drinking, they're going to think it's okay for anybody and everybody to do it. Even though I'm like an alcoholic. Good enough for the pastor, it's good enough for me. I'll say this. You've heard me, we, me talk about this before. That we, don't, we do communion here a little differently than you're going to find in some churches. A lot of churches demand that you use wine. And if you don't use wine, you're really not doing the Lord's Supper. Because they use wine. You've got to use wine. So on and so on. Even though the Bible never says use wine, it says the fruit of the vine. Or 
etc. But I have a bigger reason. My reason is this, is I know that there are alcoholics in this congregation. And I know that by putting wine before them, you are tempting them in a way that other people are not tempted. And the last thing in the world I ever want to see happen is for one of my brothers and sisters to wind up at the bar after church because they took a little cup of wine during communion. I've had people come to me and thank me for not tempting them in that way. You see, this is another manner in which we can be sensitive to our brothers and sisters who are weak in ways that maybe we're not. But we're weak in ways they aren't, too. You understand that? See, I think the real mark of maturity, my friends, is this, is knowing where you can give ground and where you can't. And most people don't know the difference. And not realizing at the same time the great freedoms that we have in Christ. Christ has set us free. He set the prisoners free. Doesn't put us under bondage even more. We need to remember that, but at the same time, we have to be sensitive to brothers and sisters who don't see everything exactly the way we do. See, Christian liberty is a good thing. It's a gift from God. But we cannot use it as a weapon to bludgeon our brothers and sisters in Christ. Who consider themselves to be the stronger believer, by the way? So give ground where you can give ground. Don't give one bit of ground where you can't. Love the body. Get outside yourself. how do you feel? Good, I hope. Because Christ loves you as imperfect as you are. He loves you and he wants the very best for every one of you. And in some ways, that picture is the same, but in other ways, it's very, 
You are who he's made you to be. You are who he's brought you to be. And he doesn't want you to be exactly like everybody else. There's no one like you. There has never been anyone like you. There will never be anyone like you in all of eternity. That makes you uniquely special.